and you're listening to A Little Too Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library podcast, and it's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. My name is Jeff Milo, and today on the podcast, I'm so excited to welcome author Bonnie Jo Campbell, who's an author who we have been fans of, everyone here on staff here in the Ferndale Library, for several, several years. She is the author of six works of fiction, including American Salvage, which was a finalist for the National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award. And Once Upon a River, which was itself a national bestseller. She's also a winner of the Pushcart Prize. She lives outside of Kalamazoo, Michigan with her donkeys. And you will hear some donkeys toward the end of this interview kind of caught on the audio of the microphone as she zoomed in to chat with us today about her latest book, The Waters, which has been garnering rave reviews, justifiably so because it's an amazing book and was notably chosen as the book of the month for the Today Show. It was Read with Jenna's book club book for January of this year. Bonnie Jo Campbell was even featured on the Today Show. We should link to that in our show notes. The Waters has been described as a fierce and mesmerizing novel about exceptional women and the soul of a small town. And we definitely do talk about that, the uh, community as microcosm for this, the greater world. This is set on an island in the great Massasauga Swamp on an area known as, eponymous, The Waters, to the residents of nearby Whiteheart, Michigan. And out there on an island lives herbalist and eccentric Hermine Zook, otherwise known as Herself. Hermine has healed the local women of their ailments for generations. As stubborn as her tonics are powerful, herself inspires reverence and fear in the people of Whiteheart and even in her own three estranged daughters. The youngest of her daughters is the beautiful and inscrutable and sometimes lazy Rose Thorne. She has left her own daughter, 11-year-old Dorothy Zook, known as Donkey, to grow up kind of wild under the eye of herself. Donkey spends her days searching for truths in the lush landscapes and in her math books. She really does love math. She's waiting for her wayward mother and longing for a father, unaware that family secrets, passionate love, and violent men will flood through the swamp and upend her idyllic childhood. Author Jane Smiley, writing in the New York Times Book Review, said that Bonnie Jo Campbell is writing with a ruthless and precise eye for the details of the physical world. And I really do love that part of the interview coming up if you stay tuned where we do talk about the physical world. Bonnie Jo Campbell presents an elegant antidote to the dark side of masculinity, celebrating the resilience of nature and the brutality and sweetness of rural life. And we talk about that. We talk about the idea of rural noir and Midwest Gothic and so many other things. If you're already a fan of Bonnie Jo Campbell, then you already know what's up. But we'll also, of course, have more biographical notes in our show notes. But here is our interview. Oh, yeah, we we have uh, from all over, but we love having local authors on. And, you know, that's kind of also where I kind of just wanted to start. Bonnie Joe Campbell. I kind of wanted to start locally and just talk about Michigan. I mean, look at this cover, which is a cover you're so used to by now. And you even have <laughs> a scarf with the cover on it, which is amazing. I but do. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it a pretty cover? But I'll I'll tell you, I had to we had to Michiganize it because when we got the initial cover from WW Norton, right there at the top where you can see some pine trees. 
Yeah. It had palm it had palm trees on it. Uh oh. Uh oh. I had to remind the people at WW Norton and who would live in New York that in Michigan we don't have palm trees. So they were very kind and they they I sent them some clip art and they put it in there. And also um I uh I begged them for some milkweed. So they put that beautiful milkweed flower on there. But what's fun about the cover is that I noticed that a lot of people look at the cover and don't see the snake that's that's true it it but it after about 10 or 15 seconds you do it's it's <laughs> if you just stare but no, a little. i have i have friends who can't see the snake i keep pointing at it and it takes them a long time oh wow isn't that fun <laughs> it's mostly women they don't want to see the snake so <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. I just, and that's where I wanted to start is just these, these, those kind of two ideas were in my head, Michigan and which I don't feel like you maybe get enough opportunities to talk about what, and, and magic and the magic of Michigan, but you're a Michigan author. You've been in Michigan and I just look at this cover, which looks like such a magical cover in and of itself. And I think. This is set in Michigan. Bonnie sets her stories in Michigan. Bonnie lives in Michigan. I'd love to just hear Bonnie's thoughts on Michigan and how all this magic can be conjured in such a state. Well, we are the center of the universe after all. Here we are (laughs) in the center of the Great Lakes. What is greater than the Great Lakes? And uh, uh, what all we writers really really our agenda is that we are trying to mythologize something or other and you know we're taking mere characters and using mere words and mere landscapes and we're trying to create something that feels kind of permanent and meaningful and so I look around me and I'm so inspired by the Michigan landscape. Uh, this book is about the swamp. Uh, my two previous novels, the Once Upon a River was really about riverscapes and Q Road was really about just dry land, I guess. <laughs> and this story is about Michigan swamps. I grew up on a swamp mm-hmm. and I love the way it's inherently mysterious. I love the way it's neither it's neither water nor land. Uh, things can happen in the swamp. I mean, I'm I've seen animals get stuck in the swamp. People could, in my book, people can get stuck in the swamp. Uh, you can you sink and <laughs> sometimes in quicksand that you made up. I know my quick muck. <laughs> I love making making it. You know, it's funny. I made up that term, and somebody. Somebody recently had another term that refers to a mucky substrate that you can get stuck in. I, I, I wish I'd written it down because I was very excited at the time. But uh, I'm also interested in what Michigan has that nobody else has, which is the Massasagua rattlesnake. I mean, we have, I mean, other states have a few, but we have actual populations of this very reclusive rattlesnake. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to, I wanted to drop that into the story. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The other thing about a swamp is that it's, 
the word that was in my head is uh, alive. And maybe that's because it's winter and things are gray and barren, but that's where there's mud and water and all kinds of, not just snakes, but all kinds of creatures squirming around. It just feels. Yeah, this, the swamp <laughs> is so fertile. Right, you that's know, the, the word I want. Is the most fertile place. And so it made sense for these this group of women mm-hmm to be in the swamp. Oh my gosh. Tell us about these women and how, I guess, long it might've took creating them. I think that's one of your marvels is really the care that goes into crafting such complex characters uh, and maybe just the the three main characters, Rose, Donkey, and Hermine. How, 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 who did one come to you first? Did all three come at once? I'm curious to hear. Yeah, my first interest was donkey my my 11 year old girl who loves mathematics and i had actually written another novel before this one it's not published i i feel like it wasn't done or it wasn't good enough but about a young a woman young woman like 17 years old who's a math becoming a mathematician and then i i decided ah that's interesting but i feel like reaching back a little farther like how how did how did she get to be who she was? And so originally I was just going to follow this girl and I was really, I was really inspired by uh, this book. Like no other book I've written is a love story to a whole, a whole bunch of other books. And one of them is true grit. And I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to initially write a very fourth, a very, uh, a novel that really centered on donkey, the, the math, the, her name is Dorothy, but they her nickname is Donkey. There's a reason for that if you read the book. And I I wanted to have her be kind of headstrong, and I wanted to follow her the way that we follow um, what is her name in True Grit, Maddie, mm-hmm. Maddie something, uh, sort of telling her story. So that is not what the book is, but that was my initial conception of uh, of a girl living with a crazy family, sort of trying to figure things out. So then I became very interested in her grandmother. And I was very interested in a um, an old woman who's been working hard, kind of selflessly, and is just tired, is just tired. Uh, I, I always enjoyed when I was a kid meeting these farm women who were just tough as nails, these old farm women who had done everything. I mean, they could talk to you, they'll talk to you while they're gutting out a chicken or something. And I just was so interested in these women and they work so hard and they, they can't really afford to be sentimental because there's so much work to do. But I, I ended up just, you know, creating her mean. But what I saw, well, I'll tell you about the third. Uh, she originally wasn't a healer. Um, I made her into a healer. And I guess maybe that's because I created a world that needed healing. And when I say I created a world that needed healing, I think we live in a world that needs healing. I was going to say. Yeah. But anyway, the third character is the mother of Dorothy Donkey. And uh, she's a character who originally I thought she would just be I don't know, an ordinary mom character. But then I realized she was just as outrageous as the other two. She is a woman who just can't follow the rules. She just can't stay home and raise her child. She 
runs off. She runs away. Um, she's a a loving person, but she just can't hold a job. She can't, you know, be what other people expect her to be. So I liked having this trio of women. Um, I wanted to see what would the world, what is this world with this with this three generations of women. I hope this isn't too rudimentary of a course to follow, but I would just like to continue talking about plot and and character and, and what comes first. Because I've, I've heard some authors talk about, well, I, I put the character on the page and then I put them through some things and then the character surprises me. The character talks to me. And I, I find those those instances interesting, but I almost wondered if you develop these characters almost... 99% in your head and then put them through the adventure uh, just because they seem so so well crafted you'd say they're all outrageous but they literally are outrageous in three completely unique ways precocious youngster uh, old uh, hard scrabble healer and you know uh, kind of roused about uh, free spirit so I'm just curious about character and plot and how those kind of grow for you I sit down at the page all I have is a little bit of something and I just try to see what more there could be <laughs> that I, I try, I, you know, I have something, say I have my, I started with just my, my girl, young girl character. And then I tried to figure out what, what on earth would make her the most, the truest version of the character that she is mm -hmm. and so i invented for her this family and then i became just as interested in the other members of the family so for each of those characters i wanted to figure out what is the situation that would make them all the most the truest expressions of themselves and i guess i saw immediately that these women were under siege by the world, by their community and the world. I saw right away that these women, just by being absolutely themselves, were kind of in violation of community standards. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that's true for women. If they really if they really are absolutely who they are, they're going to get in trouble. <laughs> you know, it's, it might be true of men as well, but I, in this book, I was interested in these women. Um, and so I was steeped in the real world that we live in. And um, very much I was steeped in a lot of different, a, a big variety of troubles. My mom, I was sick. I had cancer. My mom had cancer. She was very sick for a long time. Um, the world seemed to be changing with various political movements. And so I, I think as I was putting these women in a community with certain kinds of stresses, I was actually recreating these larger stressors in the world, maybe even these political stressors that we're in. And while in the real world, we see a lot of the political troubles you know, we see them as an, as national issues, as as kind of abstract issues like uh, women's reproductive rights and gun rights and land use issues and pollution and and global warming. We see those as 
you know, kind of abstractions. So I guess I found myself turning them into actual neighborhood issues, like actual, uh, I was seeing how, how those, those issues were playing out on the, on the bodies of these women (laughs) and in their daily lives. So I guess, I guess I, I, I sort of, I don't know, I embodied the whole world onto these characters. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to just kind of riff more on that because you were also even starting to go down a track that I was curious about this whole idea of uh, community as microcosm for the world. I, you know, I don't, I don't know if this is your prototypical coming of age story. It almost is like it is a coming of worldly worldliness story for, for donkey. Uh, so you did seem really mindful of that. The whole idea that this is kind of, these are, these can be very much on the ground issues. Uh, I I think they are. Yeah. I think they are, and maybe, and maybe I'm even. I haven't thought of this before, but you know, there's a sense in which kids have a different. Kids do have a different coming of age now. Most a lot of kids do. Kids who are aware and kids who grow up in a families that are very aware of the political situation. Yeah, maybe kids, maybe kids do have a. Di- you know, in the old days, the coming of age would be would be somehow growing up and having puberty and maybe figuring out the, you know, the, the sex, their sexual identity or something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I think for, for donkey and, you know, for, as she's going through this, she has to contend with the real dangers of the world. I mean, the real dangers and has to figure out how to live with forces that are so much larger than herself. (laughs) I mean, these forces are larger than any of them, even though these forces are embodied in in her neighbors Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) and her family. I mean, the trouble is not just from the outside. There's also plenty of trouble just from, you know, within the family. You've uh, spoken in, in previous interviews about the experience about the third person omniscient voice in this. And I wonder if you could riff about that a little more and, and what the experience of writing third person versus first person is and what made that challenging for this or perhaps what made it uh, kind of revelatory for this to go third person. Initially, I thought I was going to write the way True Grit is written. And I thought I would write a first person narrative where I had a a gal, you know, a young gal, like telling her story in her, her own words. And I couldn't have gotten farther away from that (laughs) (laughs) because what I found is that that wasn't enough of a story for me at this time. That wasn't, that wasn't interesting enough just to have one person's story. I found that as I was, as I was writing, I was, kind of desperate to have everybody's story in I mean starting with the other women in the family and initially after I got away from the first person I said well maybe I'll share the stories of the women in the family and the book was a I had a very different conception of the book I mean you asked about plot the book changed so much I mean very much this is not the book I set out to write Um, I was kind of hoping to write a a book in which the women win (laughs) 
mm-hmm. I wanted the women to win against mm-hmm. the town, you know, but uh, that isn't what happened. Um, but I became very interested in the points of view of everyone involved. And so this is a roving narrator that can be anywhere. And not only that, but there are passages of the book where the book is really told from a true omniscient point of view, which is the point of view of the all-knowing, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the all-knowing, you know, godlike, uh, godlike knowingness. And I, you know, I enjoyed doing that, I found. Sure. And I, I've done it a few times in my short stories, and it felt very experimental, um, where I, I don't just say what someone's feeling or what people are feeling. I say how, how it really is. And, you know, it kind of takes a lot of nerve for, a, you know, I grew up as a farm kid with people telling me I, w- I wasn't that smart and people telling me not to, not to get above myself. But I, and I think I did, I think I did get a little bit, uh, a little bit brave in saying how things are and why communities have changed. You know, I think I make a case for why why people are uneasy mm-hmm. in the world that we now live in, why especially a certain kind of man is no longer comfortable in the world that we're living in right now. And mm-hmm. I, I think we can see there are very dangerous repercussions to that mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. A lot of my writing is about masculinity and um what's going on with that right i uh, often often folks will say that your your books center on women but they are about masculinity and i you maybe you need that perspective i don't know i'm i don't know either that or i'm getting away with something (laughs) i do feel like i have a perspective i mean i grew up i mean i love men that's you know, that's why I had to go get married at a young age because I was going to get nothing but trouble if I kept, you know, if I kept on. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a family where we sort of revered men and men's work. Uh, the kind of work men do was, con- you know, in my family was treated as more important mm-hmm. than the work that women do. I mean, women were the support staff, you know, and and I so I grew up in that kind of environment. And so really looking at that as I got older and figuring out how that how that goes wrong <laughs> has been it, one of my projects. <laughs> I think going just going back to the third person, uh, I think that a lot of people have remarked upon how they detect a, despite all the real world issues that are being dealt with, that they de- detect a, I think I even remember of one of you saying, a sprinkling of magic. Uh, and I think I remember reading or hearing one interview where you said, well, I don't know how magical it is. Well, maybe the readers are picking up on some kind of magicalness, maybe almost because of the third person, because the omniscient is saying, yes, this is how it is happening, rather than maybe the first person of a young person who might see the world in kind of a wishy-washy, magical, wonderful way. Maybe just a random cockamamie theory of mine. I don't know, but... I think you could be onto something because I, I've been thinking about why it seems magical, and I think maybe magical is not quite the right word, but maybe the word 
and this is not a good word because people don't use this word, numinous. Numinous is a word that means sort of uh, almost holy. Yeah, angelic Um, almost. Yeah, and, and I think what's happening is that I'm paying very, very close attention to the natural world. And I do believe that our lives, I think our real life lives that we live moment to moment do become magical when we pay very close attention to to the natural world and to the landscape without any BS, without it laying on it any theories or laying on, you know, I, I hope that my writing is remaining free of theories, whether political or personal, but to play, to pay really wrapped, give, give yourself over to a natural space and the world becomes magical, I think. And, and again, I'm not sure magical is quite the right word, but I think, I think it works. I think it works. And there's, there's another kind of magic that comes out of the pages and maybe the blending of these is what feels profound is that, you know, the, Hermine, who they refer to as herself, uh, and I can tell you (laughs) why that is, but uh, she is creating, you know, herbal cures, Mm -hmm. which is actually the normal thing that people have done for tens of thousands of years. They have gone to the plants and animals in their environment, and they've found medicines. So, in the long run, that's actually the most normal thing in the world to do. But because we've become steeped in it, you know, in the last hundred years in our in a different medical model where we trust, you know, pills. And admittedly, I'm I'm not eschewing modern medicine at all. But um, it does seem like we shouldn't lose track of how people healed in the past and how probably most people in the world still are healed, which is by some combination of herbs, um, by kind attention from other people, and also from a powerful placebo effect. Um, Those things have healed people for millennia, and yet when we see it happen now, it seems magical. (laughs) It seems magical. It almost seems, let's keep this going a little bit. Do you think this is maybe why you located herself on an island with a bridge uh distanced right uh this like something that we have almost a bridge a thread of a connection to because we're losing connection to it am i out on am i out on a limb there well no i mean it works as a metaphor it works as a metaphor in several ways because that you know that island is you know that that natural land is shrinking you know, the natural land, it was a big swamp. And now the, you know, the farmers have filled in a lot of it and the swamp is smaller. It's also polluted. And these women are kind of isolated on this, you know, on a small place in it. Maybe this is the only place they feel safe now. And inherently, um, the connection to it is becomes tenuous. On the other hand, there was a time when uh, there was a time when there was no bridge where people had to cross in a boat. And so 
in a sense, it's easier to get across. Uh, it's easier to get across. You can just walk across. But, you know, they, you know, Herbine feels very much the need to be able to pull up that bridge. So, yeah, I guess they are protected by that bridge. But I think, you know, there's not a lot of access to this healing right. anymore for people. And you can watch these people in the community. They're destroying this thing that's so valuable to them. Their own connection to nature is a parallel to their connection to Hermine and her family. And they're, they're, they, they revere it, but they fear it because they don't understand it. And they're in the process of destroying it. So they, they, you know, they really need to, they really need to get a grip. And I think the only one, you know, the only one who can save them is probably, you know, Rose Thor Rose, who is the mother, this no good mother who can't hold a job. Sure. You know, she seems to be the only one in the community who can connect everybody. And, and a bridge uh, between the generations uh, of the, the yeah, two characters. She she's, a, she's a bridge between the generations and she's, She's also a bridge between the town and the, the yeah. people of the town. She's a bridge between men and women because yeah. she's very much in love. At, there was a I wanted to call this a love story, and my editor told me no. <laughs> <laughs> I think that actually a lot of what makes the story what it is is this romance between Rose and Titus in the community because that, you know, love has always been a bridge. You know, love has always been a bridge that either, you know, remains or collapses <laughs> mm -hmm. um you know romeo and juliet they they built a bridge that lasted after they were even after they were right gone. and small towns like rose and titus are like almost soap opera stars in the town everyone's watching them uh yeah. i i did two and a half quick two and a half more quick questions then i'll let you go i would love you to open up and just tell us about why hermine is called herself i think it has something to do with irish tradition and why Dorothy is called Donkey. For the folks who might be listening and haven't read it and said, why are those characters called that? I know. It is fun to give characters <laughs> nicknames. Uh, and, and I don't do it intentionally. And uh, I really don't. I only give them nicknames if they really, if it really comes out in the story. Um, you know, Titus doesn't have a nickname. Um, but uh, her, I sort of enjoyed uh Call, having a character referred to as herself because I, I come from an Irish family and we had my great grandfather was himself, you know, does himself want a cup of coffee, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I wanted to create a, uh, mat a matriarch who had the same kind of power mm -hmm. that an old fashioned patriarch might have in the family. So that was fun herself. And I'd never met a herself. I'd never met anybody who was called that. Maybe secretly I want people to call me herself. Now. <laughs> so, I want to be the matriarch, even though I don't have kids. Um, and donkey is donkey ends up being called donkey. She's named Dorothy for the wizard of Oz mm -hmm. uh, and the wizard of Oz, or the, I should say the Oz books, because I grew up reading all the Oz books and the Wizard of Oz is the most famous because of the movie, but there are about 20. I don't know actually how many there are. Maybe there's only 15 that are properly called the Oz books. Quite a lot, a though. Yeah. And so I played around and Dorothy is named that because Rose Rose's favorite book books are the Oz books. So she names her daughter Dorothy because she says Dorothy always does come home after her adventures. So but Dorothy um, has a special connection to uh, the the mama donkey 
there's two donkeys in the story. And uh, Dor- Dor- uh, Dorothy ends up with a special connection to the mama, and that's that gives her her nickname. And then, not to distract too much from the waters, maybe I'll have two more questions, but, but I did, now that I have you, I was talking about the care you put into the plot and the care you put into the characters and all the, there's just, this, this just, this seems like a book that's finely whittled. It feels like I can, I can detect all of your blood, sweat and tears on the page. And so I think clearly others have, because is there not on MSU press, a book about your writing? It's called Michigan Salvage. Uh, what is that? How does that feel? What is that like to regard that? Well, I will say about my writing, I'm, I'm happy that you like my plot because yeah. I, I, my project among others is to, um, never make, never force anything, never force any plot point. I'm really interested in character most of all, but I, I'm full well aware of the importance of plot. It's what keeps us reading. Mm-hmm. It, it's what keeps us reading the stories of these characters we love. And uh, I'm very, very, I, I don't outline, of course, because I know that an outline could force me to feel pressure to make something happen that wasn't natural. So those, those, the plot had to rise naturally out of the characters, out of the landscape and out of the situation that they're in. And uh, yeah, the the book from MSU Press, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, (laughs) but I feel like it's necessary. (laughs) I feel like it's earned. I feel like it's worth it. I'm just glad. I'm hoping it'll spur a new field of study that's called Michigan, uh, that's called Michigan Literary Studies. Uh, I think we need Michigan Literary Studies. I think Michigan literature is different from any kind of generic Midwestern literature. Um, I think I think we need to admit that as Michiganders. I mean, starting with Hemingway and Jim Harrison, and they're wonderful new writers. Um, R.S. Doreen just wrote a good book about the thumb of Michigan, and our our writing is very different. Uh, our our writing is, I mean, we're a little bit, I don't know, maybe it's something to do with being on a peninsula, mm-hmm. but. Um, I, I hope, I hope, I mean, I, I don't know how many people are going to read this book. I haven't had the nerve to read all the way through it. I, I've read a little bit of it. It's such an honor. Uh, you know, it's a huge honor. Sure. The, edit, the editors told me they were doing this and I didn't believe them. And I, they kind of didn't tell me much while it was happening. So when sure. it finally happened, it was a great surprise. So yeah, it's, uh, I don't know if any libraries are going to have that book. I don't know. Do you guys have it? Oh, in the I library? think, I think I can pull some strings around here. <laughs> I think I can get it. But you know, that, that, that is something about Michigan, right? There is the peninsula. Maybe that makes it magical whenever you look at it. Um, Nobody has to come here if they don't want to. Exactly. We're, yes, exactly that. Yeah, you know, I mean, you're writing uh, lots of critics, whether they're indulging, you know, hyperbole or not. They like to conjure references to Flannery O'Connor or Faulkner. And I'm like, those are, those are Southern writers. Bonnie Joe is a Northern writer. Well, what we're all tapping into there is the is the rural yeah. aspect of yeah, my yeah. writing. And, you know, I mean, I think it's kind of I think you could call what I write Midwestern Gothic mm-hmm. if you wanted to. But we'll call it Michigan Gothic. Yeah. <laughs> in that. I mean, there's something that happens in these small towns where where 
let's just say the authorities are not going to bail you out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what we have in common with, you know, I do feel a great kinship with, with Flannery O'Connor and Faulkner Mm -hmm. and, and Carson McCullers Mm -hmm. was a big influence on this novel. Yeah. And I've been educating myself more and more on Gothic. It isn't just Poe and, and, and bats and vampires and stuff. It is this sense of, there is like an element of ruin and legacy and hardship and all this kind of energy going on. So, uh, yeah, and I would say that, I mean, the Southern writers, they're grappling with with a, a long-gone society, basically slave society. Sure. The plantation society. Yeah. And what we are now grappling with is the breakdown of the manufacturing um, society, yeah. where we were based on manufacturing, and people made good livings in that way, mm-hmm. and that's gone. And I think we're still, we're dealing with sort of that that disappearance <laughs> yeah uh so i think that you uh i know this podcast come is coming out later but i think you have an event tonight don't you in in comstock yeah. <laughs> is it at a library or a bookstore or something yeah. that's great the comstock township library so it's very exciting comstock is my hometown and so i'm hoping to see some of my homies there we're having a, a good one at MSU uh, in a few in a week or so and I mean I'm just making the rounds you know I've been to a lot of been to a lot of venues and uh, I wouldn't mind staying home a bit but I guess it's the now's the time to go out and talk about the book yeah and the the best compliment that I've heard folks say and I can relate to this is you know obviously there's some heavy stuff dealt with here and there are some uh, unsavory characters here and there throughout but a lot of people have said things along the lines of it's a world they don't want to leave. Like maybe it's a book on the longer side, but it's 400 pages or so. They don't want to leave it. You crafted such a beautiful world for them. Uh, so that's all. That's all I have to say there. How does that feel to feel hear people say they don't want to leave your book? I think that's a beautiful thing. I know. I can't <laughs> believe it. It's really, a, it's really very <laughs> flattering and it's a great honor. Um, because, you know, I guess I didn't want to leave it. I kept working on it for eight years. <laughs> so, you know, who knows? Maybe, you know, I do have another book, another novel I wrote that would take place later. So I might, it's possible. I've never done it where I really stayed in the same world. Usually I, even if I stay in the same kind of world, I write something a little bit different. But um, I, I'm, you know, I guess I'm living the dream because mm-hmm. that's what we're all trying to do. Mm-hmm. We're trying to create a story that matters to people, that matters to readers. Mission accomplished by herself, Bonnie Jo Campbell. I wanted to at least refer to you as of that before we wrapped up the interview. I thank you so much for coming on to our podcast here at the Ferndale Library. Oh, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. And that was Bonnie Jo Campbell talking about The Waters here on the Ferndale Library podcast, uh, a book that Diane Seuss has described as not only a novel, but a living myth and a place, a mashup of Flannery O'Connor and the Brothers Grimm. Incredible. Uh, You know, Bonnie Jo Campbell is a finalist for the National Book Award. I think she's definitely a contender for that again. This could be the year she wins it. The Waters came out in January of this year, right at the start of 2024. 
Again, more info in the show notes, and we'll link to Bonnie Joe's website. You have listened to another episode of A Little Too Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library podcast, and it's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. Local musician John Duffy gives us our intro and outro music, and you can visit ferndalefriends.org to find out more information about supporting this podcast. You could also just tell your friends or rate, review, and subscribe. Until next week, when we'll be back with more, we'll say keep reading and take care. <laughs>